The talk you're going to hear this evening is very different from the talks I usually have. So I ask you to be overly open-minded on this first talk because the title is Shame. The only reason I want to give you this talk, and I'm only giving it once, is because all negative emotions, beliefs, and actions, all of them are based on the foundation of toxic shame. So it's such a powerful emotion, and it's so well hidden, that if I don't have this talk with you once, you'll continue working on yourself on more superficial levels, but you'll never understand what the deepest root is. So I'm being bold in telling you that after 25 years of working with people, I find that the root foundational cause of all negativity, all lack of self-confidence, all self-worth, the root of it is called toxic shame. So we'll have this one talk and then we'll get it out of the way. So then we can talk about more pleasant sounding topics. But if you really want to grow, you need to get to the root of everything so as to wake up. Most people are asleep. They're working at a more superficial level. I'll describe to you what toxic shame is. Shame is the feeling that there is something incomplete about me. I'm somehow flawed, F-L-A-W-E-D. There's something missing from me. Or I don't quite fit into this world. Or no matter what I do, I'm never going to satisfy my parents or society and so forth. Where does the feeling of uh, shame come from? Typically, as parents, sometimes you get to a point where you're very tired, very frustrated with the child, and you want to do something to control them. And unbeknownst to you, you use some words or you employ some action which quiets them down immediately and you say, wow, I found the technique. I just said something that shut the child up. And what you don't realize is that you unconsciously used a word or you performed an action that made the child feel bad about themselves. So I haven't been a biological father or mom, so I sympathize with you. There are times when some of you are so tired, you just want to do something to get this child to sit down and be quiet. And of course, and unfortunately, the technique that works best is shaming. Because shame goes to the core of the child. And the feeling it gives them is, I am no good. I am unwanted. There's something wrong with me. I don't belong to this family. Something, something like that. Okay? Now, <clears throat> obviously most parents don't do this on purpose. It's just that they're very tired and very frustrated. So they just say something because of pure fatigue. And now I tell you, you have to be very careful. When your child is misperforming, you need to be so smart as to say that what you just did was no good, but you're fine. <laughs> so you see, as tired and frustrated as you are, you kind of say something that lets them know that they are good, but what they did was not so good. Some of the sentences that shamed you originally, it's like, I wish I had never had you. Or you're driving your mama crazy. One of these days you're going to kill me. Or you were such an ugly baby. The Santa Claus brought you, but you were such an ugly baby, I almost didn't take you. Or you already had two older siblings. By the time you were born, we were too old to handle you. So we were so tired. 
because I was 50 years old when you wanted to play soccer with me. Like this. Or, how come you don't look like me? You look like the mailman. How come you don't look like me? So, shaming comes from a sentence that attacks something that you were not in charge of. In other words, somebody says to you, you're too short, or nobody has your color skin in Sweden, or you come from the wrong neighborhood. It's a statement about you that you cannot do anything about. I remember being in fourth grade of elementary school and my third cousin's father died. So we were seven and a half. So this second cousin came to me and said, please don't tell anybody that my father's dead. In her case, she was embarrassed in a class where everybody had fathers. She was embarrassed to announce that she had no father. So you see, not having a father is not something that you can do anything about. Or if you're a Negro, and in Sweden you have three of them, then you don't know what to do about your skin. Or if you're you know, three inches shorter than the shortest kid in class, there's nothing you can do about that. You can try heels, but that doesn't really resolve shame. So I'm sure that every single one of you sitting in this room encountered a situation sometimes back, usually between the age of 2 up to 17. Something happened that you could not do anything about. It was something about who you were, and that was not acceptable to one of the grown-ups around you. So either there wasn't enough money, or you were too short, or your skin was the wrong color, or you were born 13 years after the last child, so your parents were too old for you, you were making too much noise for them. I mean, you just had boyish energy, but your father was 50. So you didn't know what to do with your energy. Or even in terms of sexuality, some people have hot sexuality. They're born that way. So then, if you came from the Catholic Church, you didn't know what to do with this energy. It was part of your natural being. Because people have different levels of sexual energy. It's not just pornography. People are born with different levels. So, you know, some sentences you should think back to. What did you hear that shamed your core? Like, my mother was always in love with the idea of having three girls. Because her theory was, and she was right, she said, when I'm old, she's 98 now, she said, when I'm old, the daughters are going to stay. So then she had three boys instead. So what we used to hear all the time is, if I had only had a girl, then they would stay and take care of their mother. So then there's nothing you can do about being a boy. Okay, so think back to your childhood. Some statement that's attacked your core. They didn't say it on purpose. It's just that they were angry, they were frustrated, or they were shamed by your grandparents. So all of these psychological things that we talk about are multi-generational. I'm dealing with a couple now in the U.S. where I live, and the wife is acting up in really crazy ways all of a sudden. Well, it happens that her mom, that woman, was really crazy. So now I'm seeing this daughter being sacrificed by something that belongs to the previous generation and then the previous generation. So you're the ones in charge of stopping the madness. In other words, when you understand shame at the end of today's talk, when you understand shame, stop shaming other people. And then the cycle will stop. There are several types of families that create shame in the children. I'll describe to you the types of families that unknowingly create shame. 
and then you tell me which category of family you came from. Okay? The first category is called the ne neglecting family. Father comes home at 11 p.m. He loves you, but he's working too hard. He's not there. Mother is ill, so when you come in, everybody says, shh, she has a migraine. Shh, be quiet. Mommy's sick. Mommy's tired. Mommy's depressed. That's just one example. Some of you had to walk like this in your childhood home because there was something wrong with mommy or daddy. You were supposed to not bother them. So then you get shame for just being playful. You're fine. You want to laugh. You want to throw pillows. But mommy has a migraine. Daddy's gone bankrupt. Daddy's too tired. Okay, the neglecting family. Here's the issue. Us human beings, we're, we're social animals. And we need to be acknowledged. If you want to give super self-confidence to your children, you have to be as tired as you are. Some of you are, are executives. I know that you have very challenging jobs. As, as challenged as you are, the only way to give your children very good, wholesome self-confidence is to be interested in their inner lives. So you say, my son is six and he's watching Mickey Mouse. How should I be interested in that? Well, you need to kneel down to their level and be interested in the cartoon that they're watching. In other words, the main message is, I'm really interested in what you did today. And some days you're way too tired for that. But the human need is for somebody to be interested in me. In the case of my own family, they were wonderful people. My dad was like a national hero. He built like 120 universities. That's a lot of things to do in one life, lifetime. So he would just come home like this at 10 p.m. He was a wonderful man. And I knew he loved me, but there was no energy left. So I, I never thought that he didn't love me. But the human condition is such that your 6-year-old, your 12-year-old, wants to know that you're very interested in their existence. Birthday parties will not do it. Gifts will not do it. See, children are very smart. You can buy them a sports car for their high school graduation. They don't take that as love as much as you taking them fishing and talking to them while the fishing pole is going like this. See, they want to know that you're interested in their boyfriend's name. The first time they fall in love, they want you to know. But more than just chit-chat. It's like their lives are very interesting to you. Now, as long as you have not healed, you have soul sickness. What is soul sickness? You don't feel good about yourself. You don't feel worthy. See, a lot of you don't understand what soul sickness is. If you get up in the morning and you don't want to kiss the sky, you're not happy to be alive. Uh, you, you can never dance. You can't do belly laughing. You can't celebrate what you have instead of hating what you don't have. That's soul sickness. Soul sickness is the inability to laugh. The inability to make love sensuously, even after 20 years. I know lovemaking changes in 20 years, but still, if you're not soul sick, you can love people. Soul sickness is a kind of like uh, being half dead. I'm not judging anybody because I've had soul sickness myself. I didn't have a horrible life. I just, uh, I needed a bit more personal attention. It's very different from being spoiled. It's like you have a father who takes you fishing and you can talk for three hours. It's very challenging. I know how tired you are. But if you want to raise 
a healthy generation. You have to be interested in their life. That's very different from spoiling them, very different. You can give them a little whack when they're not behaving. It's different from discipline. Discipline is very good for them. They need to know that there are boundaries in this house or else there's chaos. Okay, so think about the neglectful family. They, in the US they say ships passing in the night, like the father goes to the refrigerator and then goes to his own room. The mother comes out, gets her sandwich, goes to her own room. Each child is playing their own electronic games. Nobody's communicating with anybody. We call it ships passing in the night. It's very det detrimental to a human being to be not noticed for your inner life. If you do some creative writing, somebody needs to read your writing because they love you. It's not even that important what the quality of the writing is. If you're 12, if Sarah's 12 and she does some writing, somebody should love her enough to want to look at the writing because they love Sarah. That's what makes you feel good about yourself. So if any of you were accidentally neglected, not because your parents were horrible, they didn't know some of these facts. Now, of course you know this. When you adore somebody, you're usually naturally interested in them, right? So when you take Jill to Switzerland, is it because you're practicing psychology or you love the daughter? Yeah, so normally when you love somebody, you are interested. It's just that if nobody was interested in you and now you love your daughter, you may not know how to love. I mean, animalistically, you love your children, but nobody gave you very deep attention. You know, the Buddha said the greatest form of love is to sit and listen to somebody for hours. Not in an exaggerated way, you know. If I can sit and listen to you, really listen, oh, you feel like a million euros, you know. <laughs> it's like, oh, I must be interesting. This guy is listening to me. And we all know if somebody is truly listening to us, you know, and there's so much chit-chat, you know. But very few people really want to know what you're saying. It makes you feel great. So the greatest form of love is for you to sit down and listen to somebody, even five minutes, really listen. There's an international group, like a UN group. They're not from the UN. It's just an international NGO. And they go to disaster areas, like earthquakes, and they just hold the hand of the person in the hospital. They don't say anything. So imagine somebody's lost all family members in four minutes, and you have the courage to hold their hand and just hold the hand. It can destroy you if you're not strong enough, you know, because we, we try to chit-chat to make the other person feel good in a funeral, and the best thing you can do just be with them. Sometimes you should just hug your daughter. Don't say anything. Just let them feel the warmth. Don't say anything. Anything you say is going to ruin that moment. Because there are times when you cannot say anything. Right? Somebody loses a dear one, just be with them. Absorb the pain. With love. You can absorb pain if you have enough love. If you don't, it's going to shatter you. Some of you are in the service, counseling, healing. Uh, if you have enough love inside you, then the other person's uh, pain will not shatter you. Just love them intensely. And that will heal you. So, first category of families that give shame. You see, if nobody pays attention to my inner life, the conclusion I come to is, I must not be worth much. Now, the child doesn't think this consciously. 
your dad may have been a very good, hard-working man, but he didn't know when you fell in love. The women, think about which one of you, the first day you became a woman, in the biological sense, was there one woman in the family who sat with you, actually congratulated you, and spent some very good time with you? Any women know that day? Was there a woman that gave you quality time on that day? Yeah. There's all sorts of weird things happen, you know, with sexuality. Some people don't know how to talk about it. Okay, who belongs to the first category of family, right? And it's not that they were evil. It's just nobody knew much about your inner life. So you felt like, well, maybe I'm not worth that much. Now, in terms of these conclusions, by the way, a child makes a conclusion in half a second. So I know we have some good parents here. If you want to save your children, pay, pay attention to the conclusions they're coming up with. So in modern psychology and yoga, we say the event, the event is not so important. Be very careful about the conclusions that they're jumping to. Like your girl falls in love for the first time at 11, and that guy is not interested in her. Okay? You have to let her heart break as you gently guide her to the proper conclusion about why the guy is not paying attention to her. Very difficult. First thing you want to do is break the guy's neck. You know, it's like, why aren't you in love with my beautiful daughter? And it doesn't work that way, right? So how can you be a good enough mom to explain heartbreak and explain that she's, she's a jewel and that heartbreak does happen, but it has nothing to do with her low sense of worth? There's nothing worthless about her. In the case of divorce, you explain to the child, this is not your fault and you're not being abandoned because you have zero worth. Or sometimes one of your parents dies and you feel like, well, I must be shit to God. He took my papa away. These are the conclusions. Be very careful of the conclusions. The events never destroy you, not even World War II. If you come to the right perceptions, life will not destroy you. The perceptions will. Okay, uh, second type of family, the controlling family. This is the family that has rules. Piano lessons, no matter what. Ballet lessons, no matter what. We always eat at 8 p.m. If you have a date, you come home exactly at 10 p.m. Exactly. So, and then when they ask why, you say, I don't know. My grandfather said the same thing. We have rules here. And the rules are unexplained. Rules in the house are very good, by the way. Why? Because now in the U.S., they're finding that the families that don't have boundaries, when children need this to push against, if they don't have anything to push against, they go crazy. In the U.S. now, we have some old hippies from the 60s and 70s, and they let children do everything because they were hippies. And these children are going nuts, you know, because they don't have anything to push against. Your children need to feel boundaries. But the controlling family is the kind of family that carries a lot of inner dysfunction, but they want to look really good on the outside. So the family looks great at church or at the PTA meeting. It's the perfect car. They're very well-dressed, very respected. Internally, it's a mess. Because what the controlling family does, they want to make society look at them with lots of respect. Internally, they're trying to keep hell from breaking loose through very rigid laws. So the boy has to go and cut the lawn. The girl has to help mommy. The rules are very, very rigid. On the outside, they look great. So 
Who comes from the controlling family? Very rigid laws. When you have very rigid laws, then the child can't individualize. Individuation means the child at some point needs to express her autonomy to you. And you're such a loving parent that you're actually celebrating their announcement of autonomy. And if you crush them with a rule, then what happens? The child feels like, oh, I must not be a person. Because they just crushed me the first time I want to try my power. So, uh, see, this is, these are delicate things we're talking about. Because if your house is chaos, then they're going to go crazy in a different way. But if there are very rigid rules that crush the individuality of the child, just as they're beginning to test their powers. So the reason uh, controlling families shame the child, the child feels like the rules are so powerful that if I break these rules, then I'm never going to be loved. I'm never going to be accepted. The other thing is, if the child is somehow different, then it's going to be very scary for them to feel okay in the family. What if you're an army general with four stars and your son comes out to be gay and he wants to do women's hairstyling? It can happen. I mean, none of your sons are going to be exactly like you. It will happen in a different way, in all sorts of ways. They're not going to be like you. Forget that notion. So, you know, the way the controlling family damages, it's like the rules are so serious that I don't have any hope of being able to be me and to live my life. You basically want to kill yourself because God created you as something unique, but these laws are saying no. And of course, the more powerful your family is, typically, the more rigid the rules so then you have to be very strong to survive those rules. Okay, then we have another kind of family. It's called the enmeshed family. In other words, if my mother is sad, I have to be sad. If the family is bankrupt, then I am also bankrupt. If the family is Catholic, I have to be Catholic. Enmeshed families like this. You want a shirt, you just go to your sister's drawer and pick your shirt. You want a cell phone, you pick up your brother's. You borrow your father's car. Everybody's into each other. And then, you know, I do counseling, so then some of these cases get very tricky because I had a girl of nine come to my office for counseling. And uh, after about six minutes she opened up and she started crying. I said, what's wrong? She said, well, I don't know what to do. I said, what, about what? And she said, about my daddy's problem. And I said, well, what's the problem? She said, she said, I don't know. I was in my room doing some homework. My father came in, broke out crying, and said to me, please talk to your mommy because she doesn't have sex with me anymore and she may not love me anymore. Please make your mommy love me. This is very overwhelming for a nine-year-old. So some of you may have grown up in families as you were younger where they tossed very adult problems at you. Like you knew when your daddy had lost the job. You knew too much about the finances of the family or you knew about the sexuality of mom and dad, if they were doing well or not. And how does a child handle this? You know, these are very adult things. How many of you have children who ask you questions about your adult issues and you purposely don't answer them? You, know, you, you don't want to weigh them down too much. 
Yeah, because sometimes they're curious, you know. Do you still love daddy, you know, or, or is daddy making enough money these days? You know, they'll ask the questions. And you have to be very wise to know how much an 11-year-old can handle. Okay, so how many of you came from the enmeshed family? Borrowing each other's clothes. If mommy was depressed, you had to be depressed. Uh, yeah, or you knew too much about the finances of dad. Yeah, so what does the enmeshed family do? It makes you lose yourself. <laughs> Everybody's into each other. So you don't know where you end and where your father begins. There's too much sharing. Somebody comes into your room and starts reading your diary. People know each other's internet passwords. They're borrowing clothes all the time. Don't take some of my examples too seriously. But the question is, uh, how many of you had very healthy boundaries? Like my bedroom, my diary, they didn't know your cell phone's passwords, right? Your pocket money was your pocket money. And how many of you at this age know that uh, you were well protected and they didn't give you too many adult problems to solve when you were growing up? So, you know, sometimes, especially if it's a bad marriage, then sometimes you, the six-year-old boy, become the candidate for the missing husband. Some of you fell into this trap because your nature was a loving nature. So some of you became mommy psychologists because you had a nice nature. You wanted to make sure that she was feeling okay. See, we have different gradations of this. So it's not exactly abuse because some of us did it to ourselves because we had that nature. Not all of it is purposeful abuse. The next kind is the abusive family. Abuse means uh, inappropriate jokes, inappropriate touching, inappropriate punishment. So in an abusive family, usually the men try to overpower the ladies. Or the older members of the family gang up against the youngsters in the family. Or even there's some, you know, American English, there's this expression, snide comments, like the 13-year-old girl's breasts are coming out, and the father makes a joke about the breasts becoming large. Just some comment at the wrong time. You know, any kind of little joke can do some harm. So you shouldn't drive yourself crazy as parents, but be careful about some comments. Some, some parents, when they want to give sexual education, the sexual education is too strong. <laughs> it's inappropriate for that age. By the way, nowadays they have a very interesting theory about sexual education. They're asking parents to deliver the sexual education before the first period or before the first ejaculation. They're saying, do it at nine. Prepare the mind before it actually happens but then not, not too much of it. Also, some, some very uh, other fragile things, like the level of nudity you have in your home. What is the level of appropriate nudity? Then what's the appropriate age for your little boy and your little girl to be in the, right, in the same bathtub together? Because, you see, some of sexual abuse happens when the older brother is fondling the younger sister. And it's very frightening to her because she can't say at the dinner table that my brother's touching me. So nowadays they say one, every, one in every three women has been touched inappropriately. One in every seven men has been touched inappropriately. And the sad thing, they say that in families when this happens, it happens about 83 times before real help arrives. 
The other sad thing is in families when, where there's some serious sexual abuse going on, the sad thing is that the second parent is somehow cooperating with the first parent. Cooperating, I don't mean that they do it together to the child. It's like the wife kind of suspects that the husband is disappearing into the bathroom, but she's not coming in to face the situation. So that's a kind of cooperation. So now, with total nudity, I still, although I'm from the Middle East, I would still venture to tell you that when your boy is 12 and a half and is just coming to puberty, and you're the only woman around so far, and you're completely nude in bed, and he's lying next to you, it may be a bit too much for his nervous system. Because he hasn't had the first girlfriend yet. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. I would say the more natural the parents feel, then the more relaxed the children are going to be. You know, here's the, the message about shame. The overall message, without getting into too much detail, the message is there's something wrong with you. I don't accept you. You're not worth my time. You know, it's this strange feeling of there must be something wrong with me because my father talks to me once a week. Now, the problem is, though, sometimes you're being very good. The children come to the wrong conclusions. Like, for example, you're one girl and there are five brothers, and you find the father is playing soccer with the boys, you decide that because you're the girl, he doesn't want to play with you. See, a lot of times the children come to the conclusion. It's not that the parent is doing something awful. That's why <laughs> you have to be extra smart and figure out when they're jumping to the wrong conclusions. You save them right on the first day figure out when they're coming to wrong conclusions. Uh, in the case of sexual assault or sexual harassment, that's really the worst because the center of your being is your body. So if somebody's hitting you or touching you when you don't want to be touched, somebody's attacking the center, the center of your existence. So children who come from abusive families, a lot of them have left their bodies. If you take them to a massage room, they, they cannot connect with the fact that they're being given massage. If you take them to yoga asanas, in the middle of the asanas, they lose their bearing. They can't get the fact that it's my body taking in the breath. You can easily identify people who are not in their body. You know, even when they're doing yoga, it's as if somebody else is doing it. In massage, they have no connection with the masseuse or with the massage being received. When they look at themselves in the mirror, there's judgment. There's no sense of I as a whole. The women have to be extremely enlightened because there's all sorts of messages coming to you about your bodies. The men, we have more of a democratic world in terms of what, what an acceptable man is. The women, you have to be very smart. You guys have to practice self-love to the core. Every advertisement, every fashion magazine, they're all coming at you. You have to be very smart. Your only choice is deep self-love, which is not just physical. It goes beyond that. And then you teach that to your daughters. Very difficult. When the daughter is 16, you tell her you also have something inside. They'll throw you out of the room. They want to hear that they're beautiful. So how smart do you have to be to tell your 15-year-old daughter that she also has lots of beauty inside? They don't want to hear that at 15. They want to be popular. And you know where it begins? It begins with the mirror of your eyes. 
if they see that they are so worthwhile because you're really interested in them. So I'm not being idealistic. On some days you're tired, you know, you scream a little bit. That's irrelevant. If they know that you are interested in them as human beings, they're going to feel like gold. And that doesn't have to come with birthday gifts or words, you know. Uh, too many words, nonsense. They're going to sense if you're interested in them. It's like, I'm into you because you're my daughter. That they pick up. So put away, you know, if you put away all birthdays, all gifts, all compliments, they know when you're interested in them. And if you're interested in them, they feel interesting. That's the bad joke played on human beings. We need to see if some elders look at us and our inner life as something interesting. Uh, my outer life was full of a lot of great stuff. I wasn't missing anything. There was nobody in my inner life. I was even popular in the class. That wasn't the issue. Nobody knew my inner life. Anybody can save you. The driver of the school bus can save you. So what I'm saying is a dog, a puppy can save somebody. You know, because they're happy to see you. The human needs to know that they are wanted and truly valued by somebody. So anybody can save you. One great teacher can save you. It doesn't need to be a parent. I have a first cousin. She was sent to boarding school at 8, stayed there until 28. Uh, she said the reason I'm healthy, Kambis, is because every day in the cafeteria, they delivered letters from my mom or my dad. Those letters were coming every day. So although I was in boarding school, I knew that I was their life. She's amazingly healthy for somebody who was sent away at eight. The formula is the same. Somebody really valued your inner life. How many of you had a lot, but not too many people knew anything about your inner life? Right? You had clothes, you had toys. At the proper time, you had a bicycle. There was nothing apparently missing. But nobody knew the day you fell in love. Nobody knew if you were afraid to go talk to that girl in class. In other words, the father was not a friend. Of course, in 1958, no father was a friend. It was a different time. There was no child psychology. Okay, let me give you some symptoms of people who are ashamed. Number one. You're very, very afraid to get intimate in love. And usually on the 60th day or on the 90th day of a relationship, you push people off. Now, what's magical about the day 60 or the 90? Usually between the 60th and the 90th day, the romantic dating has stopped. In other words, you hug each other in the pajama for the first time. No Italian restaurant. And that's a dangerous day. Why? Because the person is then going to get to know you. You know, Italian restaurants with candlelights, those are easier. But the first time a girl hangs her shirt in your closet, you freak out. Because they're supposed to know you. If you've been ashamed, you don't like somebody to really get to know you. It's an illusion because there's nothing wrong with you. The problem with shame is that you're not shameful. Somebody's put it on you. That's the problem with shame. It's not that you're shameful. The previous generation has given it to you. So when a girl wants to get too close to you, you have this illusion that if she gets too close, she's going to know who I am. And it's an illusion because you're okay. So that's one symptom. The other, extreme shyness. Extreme shyness. Another one, um, you can either become a victim or the aggressor. People who've been shamed, uh, 
can either become very submissive and submit to continued abuse or they become aggressors. You either become a victim or you become an aggressor. So some of you as bosses in your companies can either be very abusive or just when you're about to collect your Christmas bonus, you give it to your team. You let other people do the interesting stuff. In the annual meeting, instead of taking credit, you let your team have it. All of them. You can never keep anything good for yourself. Somebody compliments your sweater, you give it away. If you have shame, you have big problems with the following mantra. Listen to this mantra. My life. How many of you can easily say this? My life. You see, because you say, Kamiz, I have three children. I'm a mommy. So it's selfish to say my life. I say, no, 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 no. If you don't have a life, then as a mommy, you're going to freak out one day because you don't have a life. You see? Or what do you do the first day that they go to college? You're going to hang yourself if you don't have a life. So, you know, I give this mantra to a lot of people worldwide. There's big problems with this mantra. My life. Is there anybody that reads my spiritual blog that I write? Anybody read that from my website? Okay. My last, last writing, I said, your life is like potting clay. They give it to you. You need to shape your life. So I don't care how much your spouse loves you. You're the only one that can take your life and shape it. You need to teach this example to your children. Give them a piece of molding clay. Do this, please. Give them some clay and say, look, you see this? It has no shape. You need to shape this clay into your life. That's how your life is. Teach them. Teach them that no matter how much mommy and daddy and their future husband loves them, they need to shape this clay. And they say, well, how? You do this. You say, you see, you need to be able to visualize what it is that makes you happy. And then if they say, well, mommy, I like the violin. I can't make money playing violin. You say, nonsense. Anybody can make money if they can visualize that life. So please give them some clay. Have them feel the idea that my life is moldable. I started at 32, I'm an ex-banker. I had to mold this, it's possible. So people with shame. A lot of people with shame can come off as being very grandiose. If you're ashamed of who you are, you can appear as being extremely impressive because you're very afraid of your own shame. Uh, if, you've, if you've met people who are always, every day, superbly dressed, the cologne is there every day, the hair is perfect every day, you know, Armani suits every day, the shoes are absolutely polished, you can't find any fault in the way they look. Okay? Be careful of that look. I mean, some of you are good dressers. That's a different thing. But if you're like that every day, then you're wanting to be perfect. Extreme perfectionism is a defense for shame. If you're more healthy, ah, some days you look like hell, other days you look great. It doesn't affect your inner being. So be careful about, you know, unquestionable looks. And also families that are unquestionably attractive. Range Rover, Land Cruiser, Armani, Rolex, Submariner, everything. Every day. Other symptoms. You feel like the outside man in. You don't feel like you belong to any group. Um, 
a main symptom of being shamed is that you feel like the outsider. Everywhere you go, you feel odd. You can't connect with people. So some of you say, Kambis, you know me. I mean, I know I'm talking to one of you specifically. Some of you are original personalities. Okay? That doesn't come into this talk. You can be a very original personality, but feel connected to a puppy, to, to old town Stockholm on a Sunday morning. You feel connected to human beings. You feel sad when you see the movies of a war or something like that. Somehow connected to life. If you feel very disconnected, outsider, odd, all the time, you have been shamed. It's a feeling of constant isolation. So I'm not talking about original personalities. Einstein was an original personality. But he doesn't have to be lonely or isolated. Okay, another symptom of being shamed. No matter what you accomplish, you're hopeless. Why? Because somebody gave you the message that you don't measure up. These are our rules and you don't fit. So now you've got these incredible accomplishments in your resume. Somehow you can't breathe easy with your own life resume. Is there anybody in this room that can go brush their teeth in the evening and say, good job, good day, good job. Yeah, very easy, so-so, yeah. Not so easy. Try congratulating yourself tonight before you go to sleep for something that you've done very well. Don't say it to anybody else in the family. You in front of the mirror and you say, wow, that was some courage or some energy. This is one of the things that I've learned later in my life. It wasn't one of the first things I did. Just to be able to look yourself in the mirror and really acknowledge who you are. Okay, another uh, sign of being shamed is that you're very judgmental of other people because shamed people are judging themselves so they feel better when they judge somebody else. This is called projecting. So if my belly is getting too big, then I make fun of other fat people. It makes me feel better. It's called projection. If you feel yourself getting very, very judgmental sometimes, you've been shamed. Also, a lot of lying. If you're ashamed of who you are, you're lying left and right. You literally lie about who you are. And then you become such a lie, you don't recognize yourself anymore. All right, in, in relationships, shamed people have very fuzzy boundaries. Uh, you lose yourself in love very quickly, and then you want to push the way, away the person because you don't want them to get too close to you. So you fall in love very quickly, and then you push away because you don't want them to know you. So the boundaries are very, very uh, fuzzy in love. Also, uh, if you've been ashamed, you usually get into romantic triangles or rectangles also. If you've been ashamed, you're very afraid of being abandoned. A lot of men that I know that are otherwise very, very brave are very afraid of abandonment. There are a lot of very powerful men making more than half a million euros a year that are very afraid of abandonment. They've been ashamed somehow. Shame children are afraid of being abandoned. They cannot break up a relationship. So what they do, they form triangles. In France, everybody has a maîtresse. 
and a wife. Italians have eight and mama. <laughs> Alpha and mama. And seven more. Now somebody just told me that Italian mom, mamas are like this, you know, very, very strong opinionated women. So what this does to the boy, the boy loses power when the mom is too powerful. So then they're very loyal to mama, but having affairs all the time because they've been castrated. The mama is too powerful. Okay, now uh, what to do with your children in terms of non-shaming? The message, the message is you are of value to me for the rest of my life because you're my child. That's the main message. I am really into you because you're my child. And that's not going to end. There's no conditions on it. You can scream at, at them some days. That's okay. Screaming in a non-judgmental way will not hurt them. Because they'll know, they'll know you love them. Your son has an astonishing amount of self-confidence. This guy is a teenager. And he comes up to says, Hello, Kambis. How are you doing today? You know, he's, he's really out there. The way he approaches you, you know. So that's the message you give your child. It's like, I am into you and will be into you for the rest of my life. Because you're from me. You're my child. That's not going to go away. There's no conditions. If they do something bad, tell them the thing you did is bad, but you're not bad. Be careful of any comment that judges the core of them. It's like, hey, I'm 1 meter 95. How come you look like a turnip? You know? Why are you short? You don't look like me. Where are you from? I'm good at sports. How come you're playing the violin all the time? Any of these comments? Okay, so this is the first and last time I'm going to have this talk with you. Because when people see the word shame on, on a workshop title, you know, it's, it's like an ugly word. It's like we're here for a spiritual weekend. But after 25 years of working on people, I'm very convinced that if there's a part of you that's negative, if part of your soul is sick, you can't dance. You don't celebrate your lovemaking. Uh, you're not happy to be alive. You have the Porsche, but you don't enjoy it. In that comment, I didn't mean any one specific person. I mean, you're not celebrating. It's soul sickness. Somebody shamed you. The worst of it is sexual abuse because somebody's touching the core of you. Or this kind of abuse, you know. Aggression. So, how to heal yourself from shame? You have to walk into shame. The more you deny it, the worse it gets. So, you know, with severe addictions, people with severe addictions, these are people who deny shame. If you want to read a good American author on shame, he was a very shamed man. He woke up in his own urine under a car one morning as a severe alcoholic. And then he quit and he's on 13 TV channels. His name is John Bradshaw. And if you're interested in tonight's talk, you should buy two books from Amazon, from John Bradshaw. One of them is called Healing the Shame that Binds You. The second one is called The Family. That second one is a real eye-opener. It's about dysfunctional families of all kinds. You're going to see your own family in that second book because it discusses all dysfunctional families, all kinds. It's not meant to shame you. You just, you see, talks like this just open your eyes. You wake up.
So I'm not judging you. I just wanted to talk to you about this topic. Because if you have some soul sickness, or if you're too shy, or you may have said, said something unconsciously to shame your child, then you should pay attention to this topic. You know, it's really like a bad virus. First of all, it's a virus because it's been given to you. Number two, once you accept it under your skin, uh, you, have to, you have to acknowledge that it's there, like a virus. And then the second thing you do is you say, oh, this was given to me. I am not shame. I am not shameful. The main cure for shame, you say, ah, now I know who gave it to me, and I know how it was given to me, and therefore I was not born with shame. Because your shame is not real. Somebody gave it to you. If somebody touches you the wrong way and you're 12, that's not you. Somebody touched you. It's not yours. To heal shame, you need a support group that loves you very unconditionally. You need to talk to some humans about your shame and have them love you anyways and have them support the fact that you were not born with shame. It has to be a group that understands because the minute you mention shame, people are they're afraid of this word. By the way, shame and sexuality are very intertwined. Here's what I'm insinuating. Uh, part of exciting sex is very intertwined with shame. So you see, we're not shaming somebody for being sensuous. All I'm saying is, uh, the industry of pornography, the industry of lingerie, is very close to the border between sensuality and shame. It's like naughty stuff versus sensuous stuff. What is the border? See, the naughty starts to play on shame. Like when a woman says, I like the bad guy with 66 tattoos. So wh where's the border there? Because you see, when I do counseling, uh, a woman comes into my office and says, I met the most wonderful man. And then the same week comes, I met a really bad guy. And then by the second session, both of them have kissed her. So I said, well, how do you feel now? She said, when the nice guy kissed me, it was like chalk. When the bad guy kissed me, fireworks. And then when I work with her some more, by the third week, I realize she's excited by shame. Shame is sexually exciting. Why are some of those clubs dark? Or they have purple lights? It is mysterious, isn't it? Well, think about this. I just want to let you know something. This is just my view, of course. But shame comes right into sexuality. And a lot of times it makes it super exciting. Super exciting. It's right on the border. So, the more you heal the more wonderful sexuality you can have minus the shame. So they're so intertwined, it's very difficult to separate them. And the advertising industry gets right there on the border. Like dark clubs, smoky bars, you know, complicated lingerie. It's right there. Or what if you weren't wearing it? Would the husband still be interested? And like in the US, when Valentine's Day arrives, there's always a couple of advertisements about what to do that night to become more interesting. So that's it. That's kind of a shame message.
Anyways, uh, the only reason I have this last kind of talk, I just want you to be very smart. I'm not a priest. I can be very sensuous. I'm not a priest. All I'm saying is see all the shades. See all the shades. See how they're playing with your minds. I frankly, amongst all the people I've met my entire life of working with people, I may have met fewer than 10 who have zero shame. Now, I don't care about what they're doing. That's irrelevant. Shame is about what you're feeling about yourself. Mary Magdalene became the best friend of Christ. So prostitution by itself is no indication of shame. Shame is what you're feeling inside. Was there one of you who was younger and somebody tried to shame you and through some miracle as a child you listened to them and you refused to believe it? Well, some of you, if you think about most of you have had a moment where somebody tried to come and attack your inside about you not being good enough. And some miracle, you just didn't absorb it. Uh, if you didn't absorb shameful situations, it's, it's probably because you weren't raised with shame. If you were raised with shame, you would be very quick to take it in.